Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I have a friend who's fond of saying, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, read your Bible out loud. And so that's why we read the scripture every week together and take our remarks from that. We'll do that today. We're in Luke chapter 2. If you have your copy of scripture, join me now. Luke chapter 2, our text this morning, verses 39 through the end of the chapter. We're studying verse by verse through Luke's gospel. Luke is the only gospel writer who gives us any insight into the childhood of Jesus. And that only one brief episode that occurred when Jesus was 12 years old. But that one episode tells us some very important things about the incarnation and Christ's understanding of his own mission and ministry. Last week, if you'll recall, we were introduced by Luke to two witnesses of the incarnation. And when we speak of the incarnation, we're talking about God taking on human flesh. The the first witness Luke calls to the stand was a man named Simeon. Simeon had been promised by God that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. God fulfilled that promise. Not only did Simeon see the Messiah, he had the great privilege of holding the baby Jesus in his arms. And next, Luke introduces an elderly woman named Anna who had been a widow for many decades. She lived there on the temple grounds. She spent her time in prayer and fasting. Specifically, she was praying for the Messiah to come and be the Savior to his people. Her prayer was answered. And she also beheld the baby Jesus with her own eyes and gave glory to God. Now, in his gospel, Matthew provides some information that Luke does not. Uh, Matthew tells us that after the purification was over, after circumcision, after the interaction there in the temple, uh, the couple, Mary and Joseph, were warned that Herod the king sought to do harm to the baby. And so they fled to Egypt and stayed there until it was safe to return. Luke does not include that episode in his gospel, but don't let that throw you as we read the text this morning. does not mean that one or the other is wrong. It simply means that the Holy Spirit chose to emphasize different aspects of Jesus' life through two different perspectives, just as any two writers would emphasize different things and omit others. And so the Bible is altogether true and trustworthy. So let's read a portion of it now. Beginning in verse 39, Luke 2. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, that is Mary and Joseph, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? 
Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his word. Now you remember that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. And that included the ceremonial law that was kept surrounding his birth. He was circumcised as God had instructed Abraham. He, uh, his mother rather, kept the purification rituals after he was born according to the Levitical law. And now we see them being law keepers again. They come back to Jerusalem year after year, the scripture says, to celebrate the feast of Passover. But this morning we want to emphasize a doctrinal truth. Now this is historical narrative. But don't be confused, in historical narrative is where we find some of the great doctrines of the scripture. And one of the profound mysteries of the Bible is found in this text, and that is the two natures of Christ. It's a doctrinal truth that in his incarnation, Jesus was both fully man, yet fully God. Theologians convey this truth in a term called the hypostatic union. This simply means that in one person, Jesus, both the divine and human exist perfectly without one nature doing any violence to the other. Now try to get your mind around that this morning. How someone could both be fully one thing and, and fully something else. That does not compute mathematically in our minds. But we have to remember that our God is above our minds, right? And He conveys that in His truth so we teach it as truth. It's a wonderful truth. Just because we have trouble understanding it doesn't mean it's not true. So let's examine first the humanity of Jesus and then we'll look at His divinity. He is fully human. That is, in his body, Christ was not substantively different than the rest of it. The rest of us. He matured and he grew in his mother's womb for nine months, as all babies do. Then he was born as babies are born. He had a heart, lungs, arms and legs, hair, nails and teeth. The scripture says he got hungry and thirsty. He got tired and so he slept. He laughed and he got angry. He was a man in every sense of the word. However, there's a very important difference between Jesus and the rest of us. There are many differences. We had a committee meeting here yesterday and we were speaking about the role of the church in the world from the Bible's perspective. And we came to the conclusion that the church is to be an extension of the mission and ministry of Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. But we hasten to add, we have to remember though that we're not Jesus, right? We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. The church are people who are sinners saved by the grace of Christ, right? And yet, to the degree that He empowers us by His Spirit, we're to be about His ministry and mission. And that's true on an individual basis. None of us are Christ, and yet we have the Spirit of God living within us. The primary difference between the life of Jesus and our life, though, is the fact that Jesus is sinless, and none of us are. The Scripture says He was tempted in that human body. In all ways that we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. But before we get there, and that's where we're going, let's look at his development. Remember I said that the only hint into the life of Jesus from infancy to the time that he was about 30 years old when he started his earthly ministry is in this section of Luke that I just read. 
But before Luke even tells us about the story when he was 12, he, he tells us three things about Jesus in verse 40. Look at it. He says, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God. That is from the time he was born to the time he was 12. First of all, he continued to grow and become strong. That is, he developed physically and intellectually, as we hope and pray all of our children will do. The Bible says he increased in wisdom. Now, wisdom is the application of knowledge. In fact, it says here in the Greek that he was filled with all wisdom. I must confess that when I started studying doctrine somewhat seriously about 20 years ago, I had a hard time with this passage. Because I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, and what I know about God is that He's self-existent. He doesn't need anything from anyone. He's eternal, that means He has always existed and always will. He's unchangeable. So it seems strange to me that, that God would say of Christ that He grew and that He learned. Yet the Bible clearly states that in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience from the things that He suffered. In fact, in verse 52 in this very chapter says, He grew in favor with God and with man. And it says, The grace of God was upon him, even as a child. Now, this certainly does not mean grace in the way that we think of grace. As Paul said in Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith, right? It's a gift of God. Grace is getting something good from God that we haven't earned, we don't deserve. That is our salvation. Jesus did not have a need of salvation because he was sinless. So when it says here the grace of God was upon him, it's in the way that we mean when we say that's a particularly gracious person or graceful person. It means that the Father was perfectly pleased with Christ at every step of his maturation and that Christ also gave grace to others. I think the tension in this passage is resolved between the humanity and the divinity of Christ and the fact that he learned and he grew in Philippians chapter 2. We keep returning there, don't we? That kenosis passage where Paul tells us what happened, that the eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, at just the right moment, left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. He humbly condescended to do that. He emptied himself. That is, he relinquished control to the Holy Spirit, who revealed to him progressively everything about his own existence as a man. And apparently, when he was about 12 years old, the Holy Spirit revealed to him his mission. And that leads us to our second point, that he is fully God. Now, he never ceased to be God in any way. He had always been God and always will be. Scripture says the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there are many evidences in the Bible of the deity of Jesus. It begins right here in Luke chapter 1 with the angel Gabriel's message to Mary, he shall be called the Son of God. And not only in Luke, but in all the four Gospels, that deity is testified to by many signs and wonders, turning the water into wine at the marriage feast in Cana, walking on the water, calming the sea, raising the dead. Also by written testimony of the prophets, literally dozens of Prophecies written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus were fulfilled in detail, including the very village in which he would be born, Bethlehem. But there is the verbal testimony of God the Father, twice in the New Testament. Once at the baptism of Jesus and then on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
God the Father audibly declares, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' own words confirmed his deity when he said that he had the power to forgive sin. Only God could do that. The fact that he controlled nature, that he could calm the sea, and ultimately his resurrection gives incredible proof of his deity. But we also have some evidence here in our text today of his deity. Beginning in verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Now you know that Passover was one of the three major feasts on the Jewish calendar. It commemorated the time when God led the Hebrew slaves out of Egyptian bondage by Moses. The tenth of the ten plagues, you remember, was the death angel that was sent. And wherever the blood of a lamb was not applied to the doorpost and the lintel of a house, the firstborn's life was required of that household. But wherever the blood was applied, the angel passed over, hence the name Passover. The Jewish people for generations had commemorated this moment with a feast. And Mary and Joseph, being Jewish people, did as they were commanded. They went to Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Passover. Now this festival lasted eight days. They weren't required to stay the entire eight-day period, but they did. They were faithful Jews. Verse 42 says, When he became twelve, that's Jesus, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but the parents were unaware of it. Now they were traveling in a caravan. It was 80 rugged miles from Nazareth where they lived down to Jerusalem. And there were highway bandits, and so people traveled in large groups for safety, probably cousins, aunts, and uncles, and friends. And it's not unusual that uh, Jesus would be off with some of his, his friends or family members. And so they're a full day's journey back towards Nazareth when they realize Jesus is not with them. Now, you parents don't judge them, okay? You've all done it. <laughs> Remember when we were fairly new parents, uh, we brought home our second child, Aubrey. And there's only 19 months difference between Aubrey and our oldest, Tim Kate. And so we had two babies. We weren't used to that. And so after we brought Aubrey home from the hospital, Saturday morning, we went up to the Lonesome Dove Cafe in Roanoke, where we like to eat breakfast. And it's always packed there, and it was that day. And it's one of the few places left where you have to actually go up and pay at the register. And so uh, Melissa said, I'm going to take uh, Emma Kate to the car. You, you pay and come on and join me, and left me with the newborn in the little carrying case. And so I, I went up to pay and did. And, said my goodbyes and went out to the car and sat down in the driver's seat and Melissa said, where's the baby? <laughs> and uh, I, I was not a sprinter in high school on the track team, <laughs> but I was that day. And uh, I came back in and found the baby asleep in the chair that I left her and was so glad, but I got some of the most evil stares you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and it's been nearly 10 years since I've been back in that restaurant. <laughs> But it happens, doesn't it? And, and it's not surprising that in a large group at 12 years old that they can go 24 hours and not miss Jesus. But, but they do and they panic and they hastily make their way back to Jerusalem. Scripture says after three days they finally find him. And to their great relief he was safe and he was in the temple. The Scripture says that he was doing a couple of things. He was, look at verse 46, And after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. Now, sitting was the posture of, of equals in those days. When you taught, you sat down to teach. And, and so he's not only 
listening, though, it says both listening and asking them questions. That is, he was doing some teaching himself, even at 12 years old. Now, it tells us Jesus was respectful of his elders, right? Here he is, the God of the universe, and yet he is respectfully listening to these, these rabbis pontificate on the very word of God that he wrote. And so, uh, he, he's a great example to young people in that regard of, of respecting your, your elders. But this moment, I'm convinced, marks a fundamental shift in his interaction with Mary and Joseph. Up until this point, he's been their little boy. He's been submissive to them as, as all children should. The scripture says, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. But now we see him coming to understand his mission in the world. We know that because in verse 48, his mother comes in and says, son, you know you're in trouble when your mother calls you son, right? And, and, I, and I think Luke uh, has, has a, a way of probably not giving the, the full emotion here. Son, why have you treated this this way? Has your mother ever asked you that? <laughs> why in the world would you do this? You scared us to death. And Jesus said, did not you know that I must be in my father's house? Now, this tells us that Jesus has come to understand that his true father is his heavenly father. And that's why it says it marks such a fundamental transition. That is, I think, the most important sentence in this entire passage. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He was not being disrespectful to his mother. He was announcing his deity. Did you know that this is the first time in all the Bible that anyone ever declared Jehovah God to be his father in such a personal way? Now, there isn't a sense in which God is the father of all of his creation, but he's speaking here of a very familiar and familial term, his father. Here at the age of 12. And if you have to understand that in the Jewish culture, particularly the ancient world, there was really no concept of adolescence or being what we call a teenager or a preteen. By the way, that, that's pretty much a contrivance of the 20th century. They trained children to accept responsibility of adulthood at very young ages. They taught them a trade and they taught them the scriptures and they got them ready to take on the responsibility of marriage and being a husband or a wife. And yet what we see today is this prolonging of adolescence, sometimes into the 30s it seems like. That sermon didn't cost any extra right there. <laughs> but, but it seems that the intent is is for adults to take on the responsibilities of, of, of adults. And so there, there was this mark at about the age of 12 or 13 from childhood into adulthood. And here is Jesus taking on this responsibility of teaching. Mary and Joseph, will notice, did not rebuke him for his statement. They didn't tell him not to talk back. Though they didn't fully understand it according to verse 50, they knew it to be true because he'd never lied before. He never would lie Again, he never had, never will. And by the way, Jesus continued to announce his deity all the way to the cross. You do understand that's what placed him on the cross from a human perspective, right? I laugh when I hear liberal theologians or skeptics or atheists say of Jesus, Jesus never claimed to be anything but a man. You ever heard that? All sorts of books saying that after Jesus died, his apostles wanted to honor him. And so the legend became that he was more than a prophet, more than a man. He was God. 
And yet that ignores the clear teaching of John chapter 5. Listen to this, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I am working too. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, comma, making himself equal with God. (laughs) It was not lost on his enemies that he was claiming to be God. It was clear to them. This is why they hated him and why they wanted to put him on the cross. Though by the age of 12, Jesus understands who he is and what his mission is, even Mary and Joseph don't fully understand and would not until much later in his earthly ministry. Yet Jesus was patient with them and gives us one of the great lessons in humility at the ripe old age of 12. Jesus was thirdly fully submissive Look what it says in verse 51. And he went down with them, that is his parents, and came to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. He went down to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. You remember when we studied the book of First Peter together, there's a very important Greek word that's mentioned many times in First Peter. It's hupotazo. It means to voluntarily Subject yourself to the authority of another. And it's translated often in our English Bibles to the word submit. And Peter says we are to submit to the earthly authorities, to the government. He says we are to submit to one another in the context of marriage and that we are to submit to one another in the context of the church. And here's that same word here in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus voluntarily placed himself under the authority of his parents. Here he is. The God of the universe submitting to these very young parents, likely in their 20s at the most. And so I think there's a a little sidebar here, young people. In our culture that does recognize adolescence, in fact, in my estimation, way over emphasizes it. It's almost taught as a birthright in our culture for teenagers to doubt the word of their parents. That is, it's almost expected that it's the natural order of things that there comes a few years, usually between the ages of 13 and 19, that your parents become the most ignorant people on planet Earth. And your task is to question them on everything, to roll your eyes when they give you any instruction, and to laugh at any opinion they may hold. And young people, talking to Christians now, Here is Jesus Christ entering those years, and he does so by voluntarily submitting himself to his parents' authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It is right in every epoch of history to do that. Now, here we have another point, not only for teenagers and children, What about workers, those of us who are in the workforce? You may go to work in the morning with the belief that you are more knowledgeable and more qualified to lead than your boss, and you may very well be. But if the creator of the universe can submit to his parents, you can submit to your supervisor, as the Lord calls you to do. Scripture also says this, he kept on increasing in wisdom and nature. Verse 52, 
he kept on increasing in wisdom and, and stature. John MacArthur summarizes this passage this way, and I think it's right. He says, quote, in the unfathomable mystery of the incarnation, as Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men and was found in the appearance of a man, he was subject to the same process of human growth and development as we are. That is humility. He progressed in every area of life, physically, in wisdom, favor with God, and favor with man. I think there's a great word. Now, Jesus did not need to be saved, and so he didn't go through the process of sanctification the way you and I are going through, but I think he does set a great example for us. Jesus never came to a, a point in his life where he sat down and said, I'm done, right? Not until the cross. And on the cross, with his last breath, what did he say? It is finished. I know a lot of Christians who they get to a certain point in life and they sit down and say, I'm finished. And they may have 10, 20, 30, 40 more years left of life. They don't know. Brothers and sisters, that ought not to be. Sanctification ought to be a progressive thing till the day we die or to the day that Jesus comes again. See, we, we are taught in the scripture that as Christians we should always be content with where we are financially and materially. Paul says, having food and clothing, let us therewith be content. How many of you have clothing and something to eat today? I think probably all of us. The Bible says we ought to be content. The Bible also teaches that we should never be complacent or content spiritually or with our sanctification. We should never get to a point where we say we're done. Paul said, forgetting those things that lie behind, I press on. Right? He, he, we often talk about that in terms of his sin. Well, we don't, don't let your past hold you back. He was talking about his progress up until that point. He goes, look, I've got to keep moving forward towards the prize of, of the high calling. And so whatever age you are, 10, 30, 50, 90, ask the Lord to help you to continue making progress in wisdom and growth in grace. Now this leads us, I think, to a fundamental question. Why was it necessary in God's sovereignty for Jesus to be born as a baby and live a perfect life? Why didn't he just send Jesus fully formed there to Jerusalem and, and the week of, of Passover and have him go to the cross that day and then come back to heaven? Well, the Bible doesn't say explicitly, but I, but I think implied is, it's very clear. He, he came to identify with humanity. And to identify with humanity, he had to go through everything that humanity goes through, right? Birth and Childhood and adolescence and rejection and temptation. The Bible says he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. And so in God's perfect sovereignty, at just the right moment when he was in his 30s, Jesus completed his mission. He came to seek and save those who were lost. But the way he did that was dying on the cross for the sins of men. See, Jesus was born to die. I said, this is what he was born for. And yes, he set a great example for all of us. 
that we ought to strive to attain, but we know we want this side of heaven because we're not Christ. He's perfect and we're not. And yet we ought to desire to be as intimate with him as we can, to walk as closely with him as we can. But Jesus, though he was fully man, he's fully God. And he's the only one qualified to die in your place. Did you know that? There's not another person ever born, not even John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest born of woman, was qualified because John was a sinner. Jesus was not. So he went to the cross and he died literally. And the greatest evidence of his deity is that he didn't stay dead, right? Three days later, he arose victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And now all of us who've put our faith and trust in Jesus no longer have to fear death and dying because God the Father has counted Christ's righteousness to our account. His righteousness was imputed to us at the cross and our sinfulness was carried by him to the cross. Isn't that good news? That's, that's what Christians believe and we celebrate every time we come together. Maybe there's someone in this room today and, and you've, you like this story of the baby Jesus. Maybe you've never even heard about his childhood. But Jesus was more than an infant. He was more than a 12-year-old boy. Jesus is God in the flesh who died for sinners on the cross. And the way that you appropriate what Christ did on your behalf is, the Bible says, through faith. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. So if you're here today and you think you're going to go to heaven because you're better than your neighbor, that's a boast. God doesn't allow that. You have to come to him on his terms. And his terms is that you come to him with empty hands and outturned pockets and you declare, Lord, have mercy upon me because I'm a sinner. And if you'll do that, he'll hear you, he'll forgive you, and he'll save you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for these verses we've read today. And, and Lord, in our curiosity, perhaps we'd like to know more about the childhood of Jesus, but you, you know better than us. And you give us everything that we need. Your scripture is powerful and alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we thank you that we see in Jesus a young man who was respectful to his elders and to his parents, who was humble. And Paul tells us in that same passage of Philippians 2 that we're to have the same mind or the attitude of Jesus and that of humility, even as we interact with one another. Lord, I pray that it would be so in my heart, in the heart of every member of this church. So Father, I do pray also if there's even one here today who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, that your spirit would draw them today by your word, that they would see their need of a savior, that they would cry out to you in their heart, Father, and that they would receive this free gift of salvation made possible through Jesus' perfect life, literal death, and his glorious resurrection. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. In every area of life, he was obedient to you. And Lord, may we be as well. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.